the Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag Believe in Science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at News Talk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. If we get to all of those comments in the podcast, listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, what we've learned about human nature from a study 50 years long following 1,000 people from birth. And paleo burrows, the amazing mega tunnels dug by ancient sluts, I kid you not. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, is about reprogramming skin cells, which we've been doing for a while. Yeah, so I suppose it's, this is something we talk about a lot. Um, in 2007, the Nobel Prize was won by a very fantastic scientist called Shinya Yamanaka, and he was able to reprogram cells to become stem cells. Um, and he used a thing or a, a mixture, a kind of a cocktail of molecules called the Yamanaka factors, and he basically doused what a coincidence. the cells in them. I know, yeah, amazing. Um, and he basically doused the cells in them for 50 days and it caused the cells to revert to stem cells. I make it sound so simple. You know, it's as easy as pie. Um, but it obviously took a huge amount of work. Um, but one of the big problems with this is that then to turn them back into the cell of your choice, um, you know, if you put a menu of cells out in front of you, is not easy. Um, it's not the kind of thing that we can just take a stem cell and make a brain cell. So we need something that's in the middle. And this paper that came from the Babraham Institute, which is in Cambridge in England, is really fascinating. What they did was they took fibroblasts, fibroblasts which are a type of, of skin cell, and they mixed them with the Yamanaka factors, but for a much shorter time, about 13 days. And they deprogrammed them to a certain extent. But when they then caused the cells to grow again normally, they found that they were actually still skin cells, but they were young skin cells, which is absolutely fascinating. So instead of bringing them all the way back to stem cells, which as a reminder to our audience are cells that can become any cell, these remained skin cells. So we didn't have to do the hard work of getting them back to skin cells, but they were the equivalent of 30 years younger for human cells. And it was just, it's just, I just think this is fascinating. It's a potentially much easier way to do the entire process to get the cell you want, but to get it younger and multifunctional. So we've got young skin cells so what? So uh, I'll tell you so what. Um, so what they found was these cells produced a lot more collagen, um, which is a thing that our skin cells need to produce in order to keep our skin fit and healthy. And um, they also were able to move across a wound, a simulated wound in the layer of cells. So they move much more rapidly than the original cells, the kind of older cells, if you will. So it means that in theory, if you had these younger, fitter skin cells, it could contribute to wound healing in the future. It could contribute to, I suppose, cosmetic things like, for instance, younger looking skin. Um, I, I mean, primarily you'd want them for medical reasons. So things like wound healing. And if you could do this with skin cells, potentially you could do it with other cells. So, you know, there was effects in um, certain cells, certain genes that caused Alzheimer's disease, that caused cataracts, that kind of thing. So these also became sort of younger cells. So there's a huge amount of potential here without the very hard work of turning them all the way back to stem cells and figuring out how to get what you had originally. Um, quick one. Why stem cells for this um, winding back? Are stem cells very simple 
or or could yeah. you have used the Yamanaka approach on a muscle cell or a neuron? So the main reason people use skin cells is they're very easy to grow in a laboratory. You can get a nice film of them. You can show all sorts of things with them. They're much easier to grow than bone or muscle or neuron. Right. Okay. Uh, Shane, our second story has to do with the W boson. What is that? Um, Yeah, it's part of the standard model, which is like the best worst theory that we have to describe the basic building blocks of the universe. So so nothing that important, really. And (laughs) that's all the mass and all the forces that hold things together. And of course, it famously can't account for gravity. And physicists are absolutely determined to break this, I would say. They, you know what, physicists get so excited when the experimental stuff comes out and disagrees with theory because it means new physics then. They love new physics, otherwise we'd all have to go home. So um, what they've done here is they've measured the mass of this W boson, which is an electrically charged little particle that's associated with one of these fundamental forces. And they found that it doesn't have the mass that it should have by the standard model. In other words, the model predicts a certain mass. And when they go and, and measure the mass, those two things are not the same. And so They've done um, 400 scientists have been involved for 10 years with a staggering 450 trillion experimental collisions in a U.S. collider. Wow. And they've, they've determined the mass to be to be different. And they, when you're talking about particle physics, it's all about the certainty of the measurement. And so we talk about the sigma, which is like how many standard deviations, how accurate is it? And they found that it is different with an accuracy of a whopping seven sigma. So. That that really is inconclusive. However, if this is true and the data suggests that it is, it is a very big deal because it means that uh, uh, fundamentally there's something wrong with the standard model and there's aspects of our universe that we haven't discovered yet. So there's basically saying before we just put this to bed and agree that it is, um, you know, the standard model is wrong, they're going to pass things over to theoreticians and for people to do more experiments just to be sure before we start breaking the thing. Because um, this standard model, as you've described it, is essentially an algorithm for how the universe works. It's it's a it's a something equals something. And you can put a question into this algorithm and you'll get an answer out that when we look in the real world um, by by using measurements, looking at stars or uh, looking at um, uh, subatomic particles, we should know the answer and the answer should be reflected in real life. And and if if the algorithm is off by a bit because we we've underestimated or overestimated the, the mass of something, then that that really is a problem. Absolutely. So that the house of cards falls down if one piece comes out of it because your algorithm won't work anymore. And, but as I said at the start, they're really keen for this to break because it, it isn't a complete theory. So they're, they're going to have to, like, you, you need the cracks for the light to get in famously. And this might be one of those cracks for us to, to kind of break it apart but in a sensible way. This, again, is not a CERN experiment. And uh, every time I hear about a new particle discovery or a question or new experiments, I'm expecting to hear about CERN, but I'm not. Why is that? (laughs) Well, um, would you believe that the collider in Illinois where this data was was collected is actually closed, right? It was the the kind of the big the big person or the it was the big machine around town before CERN. But then CERN came along. And uh, this one in Illinois shut, uh, shut down. They've been using the data, but it's taken 10 years to make sense of it. CERN wow. is still going. Um, of course, though, they run experiments and then they have to kind of retrofit 
the the entire um, accelerator for it to do new science. So they're always continuously thinking of new experiments to do. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of scientists and engineers involved in making that happen. Okay. So it's tricky is what you're saying. It's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky it is. isn't just that, Jonathan. Uh, okay. <laughs> our, our third story, Lara, has to do with schizophrenia. This is a big paper that's just been published in Nature. And it's like you said, it's about schizophrenia and the genes that potentially contribute to the disease. So schizophrenia has a, a heritability of anywhere from 60 to 80 percent, which is really massive. Um, and it's a very often very serious psychiatric condition. It's a hallmark of which is delusions, hallucinations, disordered speech. And it's incredibly disruptive to people's lives. And it's also very hard to treat. So this huge paper um, involved 300,000 individuals. So just over 75,000 of whom had schizophrenia and the rest um, who didn't. And it was processed across 45 different countries with hundreds of researchers. Um, and what they found was 287 points on the genetic ladder that are associated with schizophrenia. And they found specifically around about 120 genes that they think are associated and it shows the power that comes from these huge numbers. So if you have over 75,000 people with schizophrenia, even a rare gene that can cause it in a small percentage of the population should show up. And that's exactly what they found. They found a number of very, very believable, but very rare genes that you wouldn't have seen if you looked at 100, 200, 300 people. And the other thing they found is that all of the genes that were linked with schizophrenia in this population are all found in neurons and they're expressed in neurons. So it's very specific. It's not something that happens to show up in the gut or in your skin or somewhere else. And the other very interesting thing is that some of the genes associated with neurodevelopmental diseases. And um, so these are other diseases that, that people people have, conditions they have that are of the neurodevelopmental spectrum. So it's all very strong evidence for genes that can cause schizophrenia and gives a potential to look into this for treatment down the line. But um, am I wrong in saying that there are hundreds of, of these genes and that these genes each have a very small percentage in terms of influence as to the likelihood of developing something like schizophrenia. And I'm wondering if we if we know that, if we know that it's over 200 genes that are together, you know, uh, have a big influence on whether or not someone's likely to develop schizophrenia, is, is that is that something we can do anything about? Because you can't you can't treat 200 genes. So you're right. I mean, there's diseases like cystic fibrosis where it's one gene and, and that just seems an awful lot more simple, you know, whereas your height is decided by many genes, as is schizophrenia. But the more information you have on any particular disease, the more fuel you have to treat it in the future. So if you find that there's a rare gene that causes schizophrenia, say, in 100% of the people that have it, well, you know, there's some way you can target that small percentage of people. So there's a huge amount of potential and knowledge is power in this field. Shane, our final story has to do with a rather large comet. Yeah, the, the most important thing to say at the start is this one is not going to wipe out life on Earth. Um, it is coming in from the Oort cloud from outside the solar system, uh, and it's coming in at a whopping 35,000 kilometers per hour on its elliptical uh, orbit, moving toward the sun. And this one is huge. Uh, NASA have recently confirmed its size using the Hubble telescope. It is 50 times larger than your average comet. 
and uh, it uh, was first discovered in 2010, but only recently has it been imaged using the Hubble telescope. Um, so it takes three million years for this comet to do its elliptical orbit of the sun. And at the moment, it's moving toward the sun. And when comets do that, they get hot. So this one is a whopping minus 211 degrees Celsius, um, which is hot enough for the carbon monoxide uh, in the comet to sublime. That means it changes directly from a solid to a gas. That gives the comet its tail and it makes it bright. So it's, it's um, quite visible. Um, uh, even though it's quite far away and it, it shines as bright as a star. Are we going to be able to see it in the night sky? That is a really good question that I do not yet know the answer to. Um, but uh, you know what? We probably could if it's shining as bright as, as uh, a star, but that's something that I should check out and we could follow up with on Twitter. All right. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Duggan, thanks very much. On the way, a fascinating look at the Dunedin study that followed 1,000 patients for the course of their lives. It's now 50 years old. Stay with us. Now, earlier this month, the Dunedin study into health and behaviour marked its 50th birthday. In 1972, a researcher in the city, that is incidentally the furthest city on earth from Dublin, set out to track the development of more than 1,000 newborn babies up to the age of three. Little did Phil Silva realise that over the next 50 years, his research would morph into one of the world's most important longitudinal studies. Though subsequent work has yielded more than 13,000 peer-reviewed research papers, reports and books. Terry E. Moffat, PhD, is the Nanol O. Kion, a University Professor of Psychology at Duke University and Associate Director of the Dunedin Study. She joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, Terry. Um, given that this is a, a study that's been going for 50 years now, I'm just wondering, when did you join? Did you join when you were a teenager or um, how long have you been involved in, in, in the project? Hi, Jonathan. Great to be here and thanks for the compliment. But no, I joined as a new uh, PhD when I was 29 years old uh, and that was in the uh, 1980s when the study members were turning 13. And I joined then because I was interested in studying how teenagers get involved in juvenile delinquency and drug abuse and risky sex and all the fun things that teenagers do. So tell me um, a little bit of background to the Dunedin study. Um, what are you measuring with these, these people and how many have stuck with it for the 50 years? Well, as you say, we've been going along 50 years uh, now. Uh, the last time we saw the study members, they were 45 years old. That was in 2019, thank goodness, before the pandemic. So we did get to see every single one of them in person in our clinic, uh, so, which was wonderful. They, 94% uh, of them took part in that assessment, or 94% of those still alive, and very few have passed away. I'm sorry, 95% uh, so of all of the people who signed up Way back in 1972. That's right, 94%. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, I mean, that is, that's really impressive to keep people taking part in something for so long. Why do they do that? Well, uh, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one reason is uh, sheer national pride. So, uh, you know, New Zealand, as you said, is very far from Dublin. It's very far from everywhere. Uh, but the study members know that uh, they are part of their country exporting important medical knowledge uh, that benefits the rest of the world. So in a way, they, they have a culture, they see themselves something like an Olympic team representing their nation uh, abroad. 
in a competitive way. So that's really terrific. Uh, another reason that so many take part is because only about one-third of them still live in their hometown of Dunedin, and the others have moved north to uh, build their lives either in the North Island or the West Island, Australia, or some of them are even living in Ireland and in the UK now. Uh, and when it's time to collect data, we uh, invite them to return to Dunedin, uh, and we will fly them there. And they get to visit their parents and their grandparents and their old friends, so that's a big attraction for them, I'm sure, those who are living overseas. I bet it is. So, so what do they have to do? What are you reporting on uh, for these individuals? Well, they come in in the morning at uh, eight o'clock, bright and early, and uh, spend the whole day with us until about half past five. Every uh, half an hour or so, they go, uh, they're switched into a different room in our clinic. And so, for example, in one room, they'll be seen by a uh, respiratory uh, technician to test their lungs. In one room, they'll see- be seen by a cardio nurse to test their uh, cardio fitness. In another room, they'll be seen by a clinical psychologist to test their cognitive fitness. Uh, in another room, they'll be seen by a dentist. And it just goes like that throughout the day. Uh, until the end of the day, they're completely exhausted. And the last thing we ask them to do is to give blood for genomic and biomarker research. Uh, So they're very brave uh, and uh, very uh, sturdy. Do the same researchers work with the same volunteers year after year? Because that would be a very strange thing to see uh, people age in in sort of gaps in in that way and and see some of them find success and some of them find misfortune it's true that the same researchers who are uh planning the data collection protocols and those of us who are analyzing the data and writing the the papers and books have been the same for uh, quite a number of years. I've, for example, have been there since 1985. And you're right, it's amazing to see the study members uh, change as they grow older. Uh, it's amazing to see myself change as I grow older. So it's, it's, I'm sure they're shocked by seeing me as I am by seeing them. But the research interviewers and technicians who are collecting the data are not the same year on year. And it's an important part of the science that they don't know anything about the study members past or any of the data that we have on them. So each time a study member comes in, they get a fresh, clean slate uh, for the research workers who are interviewing them for the day. That's really interesting. Um, and I, I can see why you would do something like that, because you could get emotionally attached to study subject 12B or whatever. Do, I mean, do you, uh, the person who's analyzing that data, do you know their names, um, their personal histories? Do you do you have favorites in terms of how they've responded to, to questionnaires and so on? You know, I don't. Uh, if if I do, it's uh, it's those who have been um, in and out of prison. Because if you recall, my original reason for joining the study was to study those who became involved in juvenile delinquency in depth. And most of those left crime behind as soon as they became young adults. They're now uh, upstanding citizens, uh, law-abiding community leaders. But there are a few who continued on in a in a antisocial lifestyle and continued offending and have become increasingly violent and ended up incarcerated. And, and those I take a personally personal interest in. What sort of questions are they asked uh, over the years? And, and do their responses change over 50 years? They must, of course. 
we try to ask the same questions and use the same measurement instruments over and over year on year. For example, the uh, machinery that we use to test their blood pressure, we keep it the same year on year. Or the questions we use to ascertain their uh, substance dependence problems or their depression or anxiety, we keep those the same deliberately year on year. And that's so we can quantify any kind of change that takes place. Of course, the study does want to innovate, and um, there's always new measurement technologies being developed. Uh, so every year we make space for new ways of measuring things and new topics to measure. Now, one way we do that that might be of interest to your audience is that when it's time for us to collect new data, I visit um, Dublin, and I come to visit the Irish Longitudinal Study of Aging. It's called TILDA, mm. um, directed by uh, Professor Roseanne Kenny. And uh, I go through their uh, assessment uh, to see what they're up to. And they're always cutting edge and right out front. And so uh, I steal their ideas. They teach me how to do those assessments. Then I travel to New Zealand and I teach the staff in New Zealand how to do those assessments. And we add them into the study. So we do keep it fresh. So tell me then, what have you learned by being inside the very personal and intimate details of a thousand people's lives for 50 years? Well, we've learned a lot of things, but I can tell you just a few samplers uh, that might interest your audience. Way back when the study members were small children, the injury team realized that many study members were coming with broken arms uh, because they had been falling off the climbing apparatus at uh, playgrounds onto asphalt uh, flooring. And in those days, in the 1970s, most playgrounds were covered in asphalt to keep them from being muddy. Mothers liked that. And yet it was a source of broken arms. So they published their results and uh, the New Zealand government then changed all of the playgrounds and many other governments around the world now put soft uh, coverings wow, on that's the, what they came out of, wow. playgrounds. Yeah, so that's a big contribution and saved many, many childhood broken arms. Uh, so that's terrific. Um, moving on, uh, then, there was the work that I did on juvenile delinquency, uh, following the young people as they moved from uh, childhood into adolescence and then back into adulthood out the other side of the peak age of criminal offending, which is 18. Uh, and what I found was that there are a small group, a very small group, uh, that we called life course persistent offenders that started their antisocial behavior as very young children, continued it through secondary school, and continued it into adulthood and became um, uh, lifestyle offenders. Uh, but the vast majority of young people who got in trouble with the police while they were adolescents did not continue offending after that. And so it, it appears that there was the pattern that the vast majority of juvenile offenders can be diverted away from the criminal justice system, needn't be charged, needn't be incarcerated, and will actually do better uh, if left to grow up and grow out of it. Um, so that's been an important uh, contribution that the study made. Um, One of the, um, the things that really stuck at me a long time ago was an interview that I heard on the radio in which the head warden of one of our Irish prisons identified that a, a large proportion of uh, people who were uh, in jail in Ireland um, had 
learning difficulties. And I'm wondering, from this very small group that persisted from age three, if I'm reading correctly, having trouble all the way through school and then going on to have having um, uh, criminal trouble, do, does that follow? That is, is, you know, in terms of the neuroscience of these children, do they... Um, because you can see that, right? Because you have these studies. Were they neurotypical, the ones that, that stayed as delinquents and, and went on to be criminals? You've got it exactly right, and, and the prison warden has got it right. So those who tend to take up an antisocial lifestyle from the earliest years and then keep it right into adulthood uh, do tend to have neurodevelopmental problems. Now, how have we learned that in the Dunedin study? Well, when they were three-year-olds, we used uh, rather low-tech ways of assessing the health of their brains. We had a, a neuro pediatric neurologist examine each child. Uh, they were given various cognitive and motor tests and uh, observed by the staff. Um, but now that they've grown older and into their 40s, there's new technologies for identifying neurodevelopmental uh, problems. So one of those is brain MRI scans, uh, and we have, uh, in 2019, we implemented those with the study members, and what we have found is that those who have had the longest life of crime have the um, smallest surface area of the brain. Um, wow. Now, what does that mean? That just means slightly smaller. It's probably been there since childhood, although it could have occurred because of their life of crime. Um, you know, many people who lead a life of crime don't pay a lot of attention to their health care and they uh, use a lot of uh, substances. So it's possible that uh, their brains have become small, but it does link directly back to those age three uh, neurological scores that they had at the time. Um, so it looks as though there may be some kind of a basis, in fact, at the level of the brain for the neurodevelopmental problems that these young people had. I think the important thing about this is not the biology and crime part. The important thing is that these are children who experienced school as humiliating. So they didn't learn uh, to read. They couldn't stay still. They got on the wrong side of the teacher. They were disliked by the other pupils. And by the time they were old enough to be allowed to leave school at age 15, they got out of there. Yeah. Um, so this left them with no credentials, no, no educational credentials. And they've had a very difficult time making it into the labor market. So they have very few alternatives to crime. So I think it's possible to to think about these neurodevelopmental problems as part of that uh, pathway that that we might be able to do something better for them if school were a little more structured to accommodate them. Does the study tell us anything about how dramatic events in our lives, either trauma or big changes, affect our personalities? Do they change us or do they make us more who we were? I would say that we have not really found that traumatic experiences change us. We have found personality change, but that tends to be as a result of positive experiences. So we have reported that people's personalities change for the better when they marry a, a, a wonderful partner. Um, so marriage can be a big personality changer because you start to then be paced by the personality style of your partner uh, and shape up quite a bit wow. <laughs> after marriage. So that, that, that's a bit um, of a cliche that turns out to be true. 
It does turn out to be true. We've also reported that people, uh, young people in their 20s who were given supervisory roles at work uh, and had employees and staff beneath them that they had to supervise, developed much more conscientious and planful uh, personalities. So they grew up fast. Of course, they were conscientious and planful to start with, and that's why their bosses gave them a supervisory role uh, over other staff. But once they were in that role, they rose to the occasion. And on subsequent uh, interviews in the study, uh, they've continued to be very conscientious, very planful. Those people have the best credit ratings by now. Uh, They've got the most uh, savings on board. They're prepared for retirement. They have wide social networks. Hmm. So they've really turned out healthy. What was the most interesting finding from your um, research so far, as vast as it is? Every single finding that we put out, we at the time, we think that's the most interesting one. So I'll just tell you about the one that we, we published this week. How's, how about that, <laughs> sure. Jonathan? Um, this is a study about vaccine uh, resistance. So, uh, the, you know, we had the archives of data collected on the Dunedin study members all their lives, starting in childhood. And we had, you know, recorded their attitudes, their values. Uh, their cognitive abilities. And last year, um, midway through 2021, when the New Zealand government announced that the vaccines would be made available uh, to citizens in New Zealand in August of 2021, we swiftly telephoned each study member and asked them their intentions. Would they take the vaccine? Would they not? A group uh, said they would not, and we looked back uh, into the archives to see if there was anything from childhood that could uh, characterize them. And what we found is they were the most likely uh, study members to have had adverse childhoods. So they had neglect, some of them had maltreatment, they had uh, irresponsible adults in their families, maybe alcoholic parents, uh, that kind of thing that had taught them from a very early age not to trust in authorities. So they had been... um, They had seen the system break down already. They had seen, they had expected someone to act in beneficiary, you know, in their best interest. And that someone, the key someones who were their parents, had not done so. And this has left them with a legacy of mistrust uh, that is playing out today uh, in the decision to take uh, the vaccine or not. They also experienced, uh, they said when they were uh, teenagers in the interviews, that they experienced very extreme emotions, a lot of anger, a lot of fear, uh, and they were prone to any time they were in an ambiguous social situation, they would jump to the conclusion that someone was uh, threatening them or out to get them or ready to take advantage. So this has been a lifelong style of thinking, uh, and it's playing itself out now. These people, how much do they share with a random stranger? When you look at the interviews, presumably there is a there's a filtering of that information or do you hear the most intimate uh, of experiences, the most traumatic of, of situations? Do people uh, admit their wrongs in these studies or, or do they put their best self forward? 
Jonathan, this is one of the biggest questions for uh, human science these days is, is can research really collect valid data? Uh, so there are two ways to answer this question. One is, and they both come down to data security. So the most important thing of the Dunedin Studies Lifelong Pact with our study members has been data security uh, to protect them. Um, we have... Um, structures in place that keep the data completely uh, safe uh, for any outside scientist who wants to use it. They must come to us and uh, work through collaboration, either at uh, the University of Otago or at Duke University. Uh, so we're able to uh, collaborate with outsiders, but without risking the study members' data. And the study members know that. They've been in the study all their lives now, and they've come to trust. They do feel safe. Um, to answer honestly, and we know that in many different ways, but one way is that we uh, treated it as a, as a hypothesis. We invited people who had not been in the study but were the same age to come and go through the day. And when we looked at their data, they uh, did not report nearly as much domestic violence, drug selling, uh, embezzling from work, uh, hitting a child in anger when uh, it's not needed for discipline. So these are very socially undesirable kinds of, of behaviors, and our Dunedin study members feel safe to admit them, whereas uh, research participants who were naive did not. Um, so we do have that comparison. I think this, this pact of data security has been the single most important aspect also to the uh, participation rate. So 94% take part because they feel safe. Well, it sounds like you are mapping out the human condition uh, decade by decade. It's a fantastic study. It's called the Dunedin Study, um, Professor of Psychology at Duke and Associate Director of the study. Thank you so much for joining us, Terry Moffat. This has been a great experience. And if you'd like to know more about all of the research that's come out of that incredible study, um, just Google Dunedin study. The easiest way to do it, the, the, the web link is a bit complicated, D-U-N-E-D-I-N. Uh, and you can hear about all of the different sort of studies that have, have come across that amazing project and long may it last. All right. Uh, looking back at some of our comments from last week, we were talking about uh, a synthetic alcohol. Um, Professor David Nutt is currently working on a new patented a molecule, uh, a drink that he is hoping to mass market to people to replace alcohol that makes you feel a little bit tipsy, but not fully drunk um, and doesn't give you a hangover. Uh, and we had lots and lots of your comments on it. Uh, someone says, how will Sentia or synthetic alcohol affect the ability to drive? Will it lower blood sugar? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if it's gotten to levels of, of uh, a concentration or whether or not it will affect those sort of things. I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, someone says, in, is Sentia, the, the, the non-synthetic version of this um, fake alcohol? So there's two versions. Sentia is the um, herbal version, and then there's a synthetic alcohol, which has been uh, sort of built from the lab. That is, um, that is not yet available, but uh, Sentia is available to order online. Just Google Sentia, S-E-N-T-I-A. Someone else says this Alcarel idea sounds fantastic. This is another name for this synthetic alcohol um, that David Nutt is talking about. Uh, I'm going to give it a go as soon as I have a few spare euro and adding it to the sibling gift lists as the daughter of an alcoholic. I'd love to see more of this kind of thing on the market. Uh, Jonas says, should we really call it synthetic alcohol? All alcoholic drinks are by nature synthetic and beverages like Sentia aren't really related to alcohol in any meaningful way besides GABA agonism. 
Um, I'm not sure I'd agree with the, the, the idea that all alcoholic drinks are synthetic. I mean, fermentation uh, of sugars, which is uh, you know, what happens to alcohol, that, that happens in fruit. It's not synthetic. Um, I think, it, you know, this is recreating the feelings of it without it being the same process. So I think I'm, I'm happy enough with the idea of synthetic, particularly um, if it's, uh, you know, if it's derived to be like it, but not actually um, as harmful. I think synthetic alcohol is fine as a name, to be honest. We also got an email in from Joe Morrissey. Um, we have spoken many times about um, paralysis and new efforts to try and um, cure paralysis. Joe says, good morning, Future Proof team. Just wondering if you've done or have any plans to talk about spinal cord stimulation implants. I'm having a procedure done using the Medtronic DTM device soon, so we'd be very interested in your observations of this type of procedure. Further to this, a lot of people have constant pain that doesn't have a diagnosis. Typically, people would do all the rounds of the rheumatology, arthritic, and all sorts of scans without resolution. I know a lot of people who have come to accept the level of pain they have while taking strong painkillers every day. They don't know about spinal cord stimulation. Love to hear some independent observations on this type of treatment. Mr. Google tends to primarily show the sales pitches from the device manufacturers, etc. Interesting, Joe. I think that is something we will definitely follow up. Um, one of our uh, favorite pieces from the past was following Mark Pollock as he um, uh, tried to, to to use different um, techniques to uh, essentially cure himself of paralysis. Um, you can uh, find that it's called The Space Between Skeleton and Skin. If you Google that in Future Proof, you should find that podcast. And this is, uh, hi, Jonathan, love the show. We used to get cold sores every few months, but ever since I got the Moderna vaccine, no more cold sores for over a year now. A friend got the Pfizer vaccine and he still gets cold sores. I'm wondering, are there many of me like that out there? Maybe I have discovered the cure for them. Cheers, Joe 90. Joe, I have not heard that, but that is something that I could actually, I could ask some people about it. I'm very interested in this. I will get back to you as soon as I can. Um, we were talking about nuclear power and how I think, uh, you know, and the promise of nuclear power. Um, Dan in Stonyford says, I was just listening to your pod- podcast and the comments at the end of the episode creating synthetic alcohol and the discussion you were having on nuclear power. In that vein, I thoroughly recommend the YouTube videos linked by Dr. Simon Clark and Dr. Sabine Hossenfelder, respectively, both are physicists and examine the science while also looking at the economics and touching on the social and political aspects of the issue. My hot take, nuclear is fine, but it's not the solution we, be focus- we should be focusing on. I would agree with that, uh, Dan. Um, must check it out then. Um, Dr. Simon Clark and Dr. Sabine Hossenfelder, these links are not endorsed by me yet because I haven't seen them, but um, this is what Dan and Stonyford is recommending. Um, all right, that's it from us for this week's Future Proof. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cordoza once sound. We'll be back with more on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>